Our scripture reading this morning is Colossians 3, verses 22 to 24. Bondservant or workman, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. Let's pray. Lord, touch my lips, touch their hearts. May you be lifted up. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a cool, clear morning. Light leaked through the leaves of the magnificent oak and laid a pattern on the grass. What a magnificent tree it was. This tree was so wonderful, so fantastic, that the local people had given it a name. They called it the Oak in Oprah. That's Oprah the place, not Oprah the television personality. Well, this angel, I mean, this uh, oak, this magnificent oak in Oprah even attracted extraterrestrial beings. You say, Bruce, now, come on. We're talking about the Bible here. We're not talking about science fiction. Extraterrestrial beings. If you don't believe me, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Judges, Old Testament, Judges, Judges, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Book of Judges chapter 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came down and sat under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. See, I told you. It attracted extraterrestrial beings. It says that an angel came down and was lounging under this tree. Did you know that angels come and just lay around under trees? Apparently, that's the case. At least this tree. Now, the Bible tells us that Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. You say, wait a minute. When he walked in the place, wasn't there a brass plaque that said wine press, not wheat press? So what was he doing? Maybe there was a wine press, uh, a wheat press next door, and it was occupied. And so he had to use this wine press. Well, how does that work? I had to consult with my domestic farming expert, which is my wife. They used to raise wheat on her farm. And I said, how does this work? How is it that you thresh wheat? What's the goal? Would it work in a wine press? And she said, well, the idea with wheat is that you take it and you crush it and you separate the hull from the kernel or the grain because the kernel or the grain has the germ in it. I said, what? 
The germinate? We're not supposed to have germs, are we? She's like, no, when it comes to wheat, germs are what you want. That's what's in the kernel. That's what's in the grain. And so they crush it, throw it up in the air, and then the air blows away the lighter hull and you're left with the grain that has the germ in it. How do you press wine? How do you make wine? You say, ah, Bruce, you're asking the wrong audience about making wine, right? Not this church. Come on, you all, you all own televisions. You've all seen documentaries. What do you do? You get a big oaken vat, right? Throw the grapes in, and then you stomp on them, right? That's how you press wine. The idea is to collect all the wine together, right? And so the two operations are fundamentally different. With the threshing of wheat, you want the stuff to blow away. With the wine, you want it to be all collected together. So there is something wrong with what Gideon is doing. And the angel sitting under that magnificent oak was no doubt wondering, what's wrong with him? As you may very well be saying, what was wrong with this guy? Well, the key is found in the verse that I read you. Verse 11. Look at the last few words in verse 11. It says in verse 11, He did this to keep it from the Midianites. He did this to keep it from the Midianites. Apparently, Gideon didn't want to be seen by the Midianites. Or, Gideon didn't want them to see his his wheat here that he had threshed. There is something that was going on that... He wanted to stay out of sight of the Midianites. Well, Washington, D.C. is an exciting place to live. For those of you watching this, I'm preaching this in a church in the Washington, D.C. area. In the last 10 years, you guys have had quite a ride being in Washington, D.C. Everybody knows that uh, a number of years ago, a group of terrorists got together, took over a plane, drove it into the side of the Pentagon. That's right in our neighborhood, right? Well, what the rest of the world doesn't know, perhaps, but you all know, is just shortly thereafter, there were a group of terrorists in our neighbor neighborhood, the Washington, D.C. neighborhood, shooting us, right? Do you remember that? You'd be filling up your car with gas. Bang! You get shot. Just down the road, about a mile, at a gas station, someone shot and killed. You're there in the parking lot, Heading to the store, bang, you get shot and killed. You're there standing, waiting for a bus at a bus stop, bang, you're shot and killed. It seemed like the whole Washington, D.C. area was crouching around whenever they were outside, being worried that a sniper was going to shoot them. Do you remember all of this? (laughs) Do you remember that famous picture in the Washington Post of a lady who's crouched down, this is her car, between her car and the gas pump, filling it up with gas. (laughs) Think back to those days. How was it that you filled up your tank? How did you fill up your tank of gas? Were you one of these people who would stand there, proud, tall, strong, big fat target? (laughs) Did you do that? Or did you just sort of, you know, look around and sort of hunker down as you you, uh, fill up your car with gas? If they had a gas station that had a huge wine vat and you could drive your car into the wine vat and fill it up with gas, 
Would you do that? I know I wouldn't mind, right? It'd be good to have that nice, heavy wooden staves between you and the snipers that were lurking about. And so it seems to me, friend, that we absolutely, positively understand Gideon's point of view, his mindset. He was hiding in a wine vat because there were Midianites in the neighborhood. All right, let's continue on. Verse 12. The angel who's lounging under the tree has something to say to Midian. Let's look at this. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. All right, get the picture. You're here, hunkered down between your car and the gas pump, filling up your car with gas, and the angel who's hanging around under a tree says to you, Hey, brave guy, the Lord is with you. You might think that perhaps the angel's not being completely serious, right? You know, what is this? Can angels be smart, Alex? You know, in Psalms 37.7, it says, 34.7, it says, Angels camp around us. I thought the goal was deliverance, not derision. Can you imagine? Eternity. Angels are all throwing out comments about you as you're going around. It's a tough thing. Well, what is this? Is the angel making a smart aleck remark to uh, Gideon? Let's read on. It appears that he thinks so. Verse 13, But Sir Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did the Lord not lead us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us into the hand of the Midian. What is Gideon saying? He's saying, you're accusing me of not being brave? I'd be a lot braver if God had done what he was supposed to do and get rid of all these pesky Midianites in the neighborhood. I mean, it's God's fault that I'm not a brave man. Things are just out of hand. Do you ever have that feeling in your life? Do you have that feeling in your life right now that God has let things get out of hand in your life? You're facing problems, facing difficulties. Seems that the whole nation has been facing problems recently. Banks were bungling their business, apparently still are. And what was the result? Because banks were bungling their business, they couldn't give loans to other businesses. And when those businesses didn't have loans, what happened? They went out of business. And when businesses go out of business, what does that mean? It means the employees are let loose, right? The employees lose their job. I know a number of you right in this church who have lost your job, apparently because... Banks were bungling their business to begin with. And those of you who haven't lost your job, aren't you concerned about losing it? You see these other businesses going out of business and you say, oh man, I wonder if I'm next. There goes peace of mind at work. In the last 10 years, we've had a few other things. Do you remember when the post office was delivering anthrax to our homes without additional charge or warning. There goes peace of mind at home. 
You know there's this old expression that says when pigs fly, it's like when hell freezes over. Uh, when pigs fly, it means it's not going to happen. What about swine flu? <laughs> you know, if you've been thinking about going on vacation, particularly if you have a taste for tacos, what's the problem? The problem is swine flu. Well, there goes peace of mind on vacation. What about in the great out of doors? Have you been noticing the reports in the last several years that killer bees are moving into our neighborhood? Tiger mosquitoes are moving into our neighborhood. And the tiger mosquitoes, like the post office, free of charge, no additional charger, will deliver West Nile virus to you. Now, how's that for eliminating peace of mind in the great out of doors? You would think the fishermen would be okay, right? The fisher people would be fine. But what's happening with our fish? You've been reading the last several years about these killer fish, fish that look like snakes with huge fangs. They come and eat the regular fish. I wouldn't want to have my leg in the water by one of those guys. And the most amazing thing about them is that they're able to slither over the grass into a new lake and take over the, the lake and the, eat the domestic fish there. Well, there goes peace of mind in the out-of-doors altogether, whether you're hiking or fishing or whatever you're doing. How many of you have earthquake insurance on your home? Got, we've got one. You're a prudent man, Phil. How did you get that? You know, a, a few years ago, I started reading about the geological formations in this area, and they said they're unstable, and of course I'd also read Revelation, so I went out and bought earthquake insurance. A few years ago, Allstate called me up and said, you know what, we're not offering earthquake insurance to you anymore. What does Allstate know about the future and earthquakes that I don't know, that they're not willing to take my money? Well, there goes peace of mind when it comes to a large part of my uh, investment portfolio, right? And then, years ago, we heard that in the town just north of us, they were testing Ebola. Do you know what Ebola is? It's this dread disease that makes blood gush out of all of your orifices and then you fall over and die. Some smart person decided that they should bring it to our area and test it. You know, they don't mention these things in tourist brochures, do they? They don't mention these things are going on here in the nation's capital. That's why they call this place the home of the brave, right? Because all these things have been going on in the last 10 years. Well, maybe like Gideon in verse 13, you are saying, God, what is going on? What are you letting happen in our neighborhood? What's with all these pesky Midianites that are creating such a problem? Verse 14, Judges chapter 6, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I want to spend just a few moments this morning few minutes this morning, more than moments, I apologize. <laughs> I'll have you here for a few minutes discussing this. Gideon gets the insult from the angel saying, hey, brave guy. And Gideon says, it's God's fault. Things are going wrong in my neighborhood. I'd be brave if God were doing his job. And what does God say in response? God says, Gideon, go in the strength you have. Am I not with you. 
God and Gideon in a partnership. When you have problems in your life that make you want to run and hide, think about what God said to Gideon. Well, there are a couple of people who have had problems in their life. Charlene Harwood is a Seventh-day Adventist, and Robert Resser is a Roman Catholic. And they have a religious belief in common. You say, how does that work? (laughs) That religious belief in common is that they should not join or financially support a labor union. They think that is inconsistent with God's will for them to join or financially support a labor union. Well, i got to tell you, friends, opinions vary all over the place about the relative merit of labor unions. Some people think they are just wonderful, and some people think they are just terrible. And I'm not going to debate precisely the worth or value of labor unions today, but I think there is no disagreement about the basic theory which underlies labor unions. And that theory is this. We get together, us employees, lock arms, right? And we will force the employer to give us better wages or working conditions, right? And we'll have one agent, and that agent, using the power of the collective, will force the employer to do something that they might not otherwise do. The question for Christians as we discuss religious liberty this morning is this. Is that God's approach? Does that theory match the way the Christian should treat his or her employer? I think Gideon's story teaches us a great deal about this. When God says, go in the strength you have, is God talking about collective strength? Is that what he's referring to? Let's continue with our story. Verse 33 of Judges chapter 6. Let's read it. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Remember, Gideon was trying to hide from the Midianites. What does this tell us? The Midianites and all of their evil buddies have all collected together in this huge army and they have now camped on the front doorstep of Gideon's nation. If he was nervous before, he should be really worried now. It's just like the killer bees, the tiger mosquitoes, sick swine, and the killer fish all show up in your front yard. You look out the window, see that they're all there, and just at that moment, bullets start coming through your home from your window because the sniper is shooting at you in the middle of an earthquake. Everything you fear has just arrived at your front yard at the same time. That is what is going on in Gideon's life. Well, what happens? We continue on with the story, and the story tells us that Gideon's answer was a little solidarity. He collected 32,000 of his fellow countrymen to be soldiers to fight against this allied Midianite army. 32,000. Good number, right? And if you've got tens of thousands against you, 32,000 is a good number to go against them. Well, let's read on. Judges chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that's Gideon's other name, Jeroboam and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. And the Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. Let's just get the picture here. The allied Midianite army is just to the north. 
The 32,000 are just to the south. And God comes with this message to, to Gideon and he says, you've got too many men. Let's continue on. You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 left while 10,000 remained. Now let me ask you about God logic here. God says you've got too many men to win the battle against these tens of thousands. Isn't that like saying... You're too smart to go to college. You're too beautiful to win a beauty pageant. You're too tall to play basketball. You're too tough to play rugby. And you're too, you're too brave to be a soldier. I mean, does that make any sense to you whatsoever that God says you've got too many men to win the battle? If I were Gideon, I'd be sitting there saying, What? How can you say that to me, God? The only good thing that I can think of this, think about this, is that all the cowards left. <laughs> Apparently, all the cowards left. So, is that okay, 10,000? Now, we've now down, lost two-thirds of the army. Let's continue on. Verses 4 to 6, Judges chapter 7. Take them down to the water, God said to Midian, and I will sift them there for you. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog with those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Which group would you choose as soldiers? If you were Martha Stewart, if you were Miss Manners, wouldn't you choose the group that had some etiquette training in their background? Right? You'd choose those, wouldn't you? What's the text say? Next verse, verse 7. With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. And so see the picture, friends. From an original number of 32,000, Gideon is reduced to 300 soldiers with suspect dining habits. For those unfamiliar with the story, I invite you to read it this afternoon, but I assume most of you know this story. Judges chapter 7 tells us God, Gideon, and the 300 defeated, completely defeated, the allied Midianite army. Uh, what does this story teach us about righting wrongs, correcting injustices, fighting against problems with collective strength? What does it teach us about that? This story and a number of other stories in the Bible, mostly in the Old Testament, teach us that collective strength is not God's approach. God wants to team up with you as an individual and eliminate the problems in your life. Zechariah 4.6 summarizes God's approach. He says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Gideon, God, together in this powerful, godly union, will in fact defeat the problems. God says to Gideon, go on the strength you have. Am I not saving you? Am I not sending you? Now, if you asked experts in labor relations, they would tell you 
that the primary weapon for a labor union is the strike weapon. I teach labor law in the, the law school, and the book says that. And the experts agree. The, the issue is, you know, what about public employee unions which can't strike? Do they have any power and any authority? And some experts say, oh, no, they can't. And they all agree that the inability to strike takes away the most important weapon that organized labor has. Well, let me ask you, what is the strike weapon? Well, what really is the theory behind that? Aren't the employees joined together, arm in arm, saying to the employer, I'd like to have more wages, higher wages, better working conditions, and if you don't give them to me, I'm going to cost you more money than it costs to pay me, right? I'm going to bring a strike against you, which is going to cost you money, might put you out of business. So take the cheaper route and just pay me more money. Isn't that the theory? Now, of course, the employees don't want to go on strike because then they lose money. They don't want to put their employer out of business because then, of course, they don't have a job. But the idea is to convince the employer that it's going to cost more money to go through a strike than it is to just give the employees uh, wage increases, the wage increases that they ask. Is this the approach of the Christian employee? It seems to me that the Gideon story shows us God's general view of going with collective power as opposed to trusting in him. But you know, the Bible doesn't just leave it with this generalized theory of individual partnership with God as opposed to collective power. The Bible actually gives us specific advice as Christians as to how we should be employees. If you look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24, God tells us through Paul how we should treat our employers. There's also instructions on how Christian employers should treat their employees, but we're talking about employees today, how they should treat their employers. Verse 23 of Colossians chapter 3, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Paul says to us, you're not working for UPS. You're not working for FedEx. You're not working for the county of Fairfax, the county of Prince William. You're not working for Hills Trucking or whatever your employer is. You're not really working for them. You are working for God. Act as if you are working for God. Now, let me ask you, if you are indeed working for God, if you are following Paul's advice, would you strike against God? Would you try to blackmail God into paying you more wages? Isn't that completely contrary to God's advice to Gideon? Gideon, go in the strength you have. Am I not with you? God's saying, we have a partnership. You're not trying to force higher wages out of me. And then there's even more express advice. And it comes from the the mouth of our Lord, and it's found in Luke chapter 3, verse 14. Some soldiers came to Jesus and they said, give us some practical advice as to how we should live our life. And Jesus says this in Luke chapter 3, verse 14. Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Since the point of the labor strike 
is to force the employer to give you more money. It violates that principle. But Jesus says, don't extort money. Since the point is you want to be paid more, it violates that principle that Jesus says, be content with your pay. And if you've ever been around a labor strike as I have, you know there's a lot of false testimony going on. So it's like three for three in terms of violating Jesus' advice to the soldiers about how they should live. Now, don't misunderstand me, friends. I'm not telling you that you must work for a bad employer. If you've got a bad employer, leave and go work for someone who deserves having you as an employee. The Bible never ever says you have to work for a bad employer. Instead, the Bible says don't try to blackmail your current employer into giving you higher wages. That's just not God's advice for us as Christian employees. Well, it doesn't stop just with that, with this idea that we're working as if we work for God. In Psalms, in Psalms 75, 6 to 7, it says this, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts up one and he sets down another. If you are working for your employer as if you are working for God, God says, your future is in my hand. I will promote you and I will demote you if that's what's needed. But your future is not in the hands of your boss, even though you may think it is. Your future is in God's hands and God will reward you if you work as if you are working for Him. Well, remember, remember Charlene Harwood and Dr. Resser, the uh, Seventh-day Adventist and the Catholic, and I told you they had a common religious belief and you're scratching your head saying, wait a minute, how does that work? I will tell you that amazingly, the Pope has very similar advice to that of Ellen White when it comes to labor unions. Now you say, wait a minute, Bruce, wait a minute. I have read about how the Catholic Church is pro-union. But I'll tell you, friends, over the years I've defended many Roman Catholics, in fact, I am even today, in defending their faith against being forced to join or financially support a labor union. And I've read the encyclicals. And the Pope who writes the most about labor unions is Pope Leo XIII. And in an encyclical entitled Longinqua, in section 17 of Longinqua, he says this. I'm not going to read it to you, but I'll summarize it to you. He says, look, it's okay for Catholics to be members of employee associations. But he says... When you join one of these associations, or when you think about joining one of these associations, be sure that you are not compromising moral principles. If you really read what Pope Leo was saying, it seems that he is saying Catholics are safe to join labor unions composed of other Catholics because they hold a common religious belief and they won't be compromising it. Ellen White, in the seventh volume of Testimonies, page 84, written in 1902, says this. She says, the problem with labor unions and similar organizations is that the collective strength squeezes out the right of the individual. She says, when a collective gets together to do things collectively, individual rights are lost along the way. And so she says, you don't want to be a part of that. 
that is a compromise of the moral issue of protecting the rights of the individual. She says this, and she's got some really strong language. In a letter she wrote in 1903, letter 26, she says this, uh, for employees who belong to unions, she said they could, quote, not possibly keep the commandments of God, for to belong to these unions means to disregard the entire Decalogue, end quote. Now you're sitting there saying, what? You know, how is it that just being a member of a labor union means that I disregard the entire Decalogue? That's ridiculous. Is it? How did Jesus describe the Ten Commandments? Remember in Luke 22 where they came to him and said to him, look, what's the most important commandment? And what did Jesus say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says the Ten Commandments, the Law and the Prophets, all come down to this, loving God and loving your fellow human being. And if collective strength squeezes out the rights of individuals and eliminates the liberty for them, how is that loving your neighbor? It's not. I tell you, you know, we're often at Seventh-day Adventists saying, well, you know, was, was Ellen White uh, uh, right? You know, can we trust her? Her advice to avoid labor unions because they will eliminate the rights of the individual is proven to be right on the money for Seventh-day Adventists and for many other employees of, of faith. You know, you know, because you've talked to other members, Seventh-day Adventists have two main religious liberty problems. Because the church teaches that we shouldn't be members of labor unions, there's that problem. Employees face discharge because they refuse to join or financially support a labor union. And the bigger problem is because you worship on the wrong day of the week, right? I mean, you worship on Sabbath when Saturday when all the other denominations have Sunday as their day of rest. And so it's more common for employers to have Sunday off than Saturday. Well, Seventh-day Adventists, for both these problems, Sabbath-keeping and avoiding uh, union membership, rely on a federal statute. It's called Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that main federal civil rights act says that employers and unions have to attempt to accommodate the religious beliefs of employees. You know what the exception is? U.S. Supreme Court, in a case called TWA versus Hardison, said, if there is a labor union in the workplace and they have a union seniority clause, that you no longer have a right to a religious accommodation of your Sabbath-keeping request. The court said the union seniority agreement is the reasonable accommodation for Seventh-day Adventists and any other employee of faith. Now, does that make any sense? Think about that for just a minute. You are a new employee. You go to work for the employer. How much seniority do you have? Zero. And the court says, the U.S. Supreme Court says, the union seniority agreement is your accommodation. <laughs> you know, if you keep your mouth quiet about your religious beliefs for 10 years, well, then maybe it would be your accommodation. But if you decide you're going to follow God and not compromise your conscience for 10 years, you have no accommodation whatsoever. It gets worse. In the last six months, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case called 14 Penn Plaza versus Payette. 14 Penn Plaza versus Payette. In that case, the court was looking at the question of whether or not 
in a, an employer, which was organized, whether or not the union could waive the civil rights of the employees. The U.S. Supreme Court said that the contract between the employer and the union can bar every employee in the bargaining unit from going to federal court with their rights. That is, you cannot claim your civil rights at all if your employer and the union agree that you will not. Instead, your civil rights will be decided by an arbitrator, an arbitrator chosen by the employer and the union. Talk about being right on the money when it comes to this idea of collective strength eliminating the rights of the individual. In the last six months, it seems to me that this has been made completely obvious that if there's a union in the workplace, that you have no more right to vindicate your religious beliefs in court. Go in the strength you have. Am I not sending you? Friends, I think this is an important Bible-based message about individual rights. And you know, Liberty Magazine is our vehicle for sharing with the thought leaders of our nation these very things. Right now, if you've been reading the paper, you know there is a huge press in Congress to increase the power of organized labor, to make it easier to allow employees to choose unions, so the unions say, by eliminating the right of secret ballot. You say, great, I'm glad to have greater rights when I don't have a secret ballot anymore. I have some friendly union fellow looking over my shoulder as I vote. <laughs> Liberty Magazine warns thought leaders about that. They were kind enough to publish an article of mine on this not too long ago. And so I hope that you will support Liberty Magazine when you get the opportunity to share these kinds of views that you cannot find elsewhere, these kinds of views in which the rights of Seventh-day Adventists are raised so that those who are making the decisions in our nation are aware of them and consider them. And I hope, friends, you will take God's message to heart. When you face a problem in your life, it doesn't have to be a labor union problem, whatever the problem is, don't look for others collective strength, look to God. Say, dear God, I want to be in partnership with you. When you have a problem that makes you want to run and hide, hide, turn to God and say, dear God, you and I, we can do this together. Go in the strength you have. Am I not with you, says the Lord Almighty.